Can we beat the traffic by taking to the skies? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. For more than a century, the automobile has ruled our cities, chaining us to grid-shaped streets and seemingly endless lines of traffic. But what if we can remove those chains? What of our lives, what are our cities... How does the world look, you know, 20 years from now or 50 years from now? That's what gets me up every day. The ability to sail above the freeways in a flying car, getting to work in minutes instead of hours, has long been the stuff of science fiction. But Joe Ben Bever is already on his way towards making it a reality. As founder and CEO of Joby Aviation, he's raised more than $100 million to develop a five-seater that he claims will be faster, cheaper, and quieter than helicopters. Other startups around the world are also developing drones or flying cars, and for technical reasons, there are strong incentives for them to run, at least part of the time, on batteries that can be charged with renewable power. Urban Air Mobility, or UAM, is coming. We don't believe that UAM is going to be the only solution, but it's going to be part of the solution. So you're going to have autonomous vehicles on the ground, coupled with urban air mobility, coupled with better public transport, and collectively those things are going to work together to bring relief on the congestion issues. Uma Subramanian is CEO of Aero Technologies, a startup focused on the next generation of air travel. As the founder and former CEO of Voom Flights, she helped that company launch urban air mobility networks in Brazil and Mexico. On today's program, we'll discuss this wild new frontier and the vehicles that will take us there. In addition to Bevert and Subramanian, my guests are Jennifer Richter, an attorney with Aiken Gump specializing in regulatory issues of our flying future, and Charlie Vogelheim of Vogelheim Ventures, an auto industry consultant. This program was underwritten by the Climate Works Foundation. Let's start by finding out just how it's all going to work. Here's Jobin Bevert. It's a magical moment uh, and really enabled by uh, electric propulsion. Uh, it allows us to fundamentally rethink the architecture of an aircraft and allows us to create aircraft that are uh, massively superior to any aircraft that's been built before um, on a range of different dimensions. The, the first of those is, uh, is the safety. Uh, we can architect these aircraft, small aircraft, with redundant systems, uh, that, that provide uh, incredible levels of safety. Second, acoustics, um, allowing these aircraft to land very proximately to where you want to uh, depart from and where you want to go to. Uh, so we envision being able to take off and land from rooftops. And then finally, the economics. Right now, commercial air transport is an incredibly uh, cost-effective mode of transport for long distances, but it's very expensive for short-distance travel, and so we don't use it on a daily basis. Uh, we're stuck to surface transportation. And so if we can envision a future where uh, we're flying every day to where we want to go, it allows us to really profoundly rethink uh, society. The layout of our cities uh, allows us to rethink real estate. So it, it's, a, it's a really exciting uh, future that... Uh, really moves transportation and daily mobility into the next century. We'll drill into some of those things later. But Uma Subramanian, tell us where is where this is happening and, and how far in the future is this? Yeah, so for me, the reason electric propulsion and urban air mobility are so interesting is studies show that by 2030, 5 billion people will live in the world's cities. So 60% of the world's population. 
up from about 45% of the world's population today, which is a material jump. So the next decade is forecast to be the greatest period of urban migration in human history. And if you look at what's happening in the biggest cities in the world, in Mexico City, in Sao Paulo, uh, in Lagos, in, in, you know, in the cities in China, ground infrastructure as currently configured can't keep up. So most of the carrying capacity is already accounted for. And so you've got two choices. You can take the sort of uh, boring company approach and dig, which is very expensive on a per, per mile basis, or you can take to the sky. And so for me, what's really exciting is that we are at a point now where you can architect a city in a radically different way. Um, and so the company that I ran, Voom Flights, an Airbus subsidiary, uh, recognize that electric VTOL technology, uh, electric vertical takeoff and landing technology, in, in the spirit of not using too many acronyms, um, is coming, and it's on the horizon. And at Airbus, we were working on a number of different projects to try and build next-generation electric VTOL aircraft. But in the short term, you have a technology which is underutilized today, which are helicopters. And so the business that I ran was about using helicopters today as a precursor for electric VTOL technology to enable people to move in cities um, through the sky. And so uh, the regulatory environment outside the U.S. is pretty favorable um, for a number of uh, <laughs> reasons that are perhaps not politically correct. But you can, you can test a number of different technologies and technical solutions in those markets. Um, so Sao Paulo is the ideal city. So we launched in Sao Paulo in 2017. Um, Sao Paulo has 700 helicopters and 400 rooftop helipads. And we were able to fly uh, up to dozens of passengers a day in the city and really explore how you can unlock the urban sky um, with, this with this technology. So they have a dedicated helicopter traffic control. The city was actually built and zoned for air transportation as a precursor. Uh, and so the city that had a regulation which buildings over a certain height all had to have helicopter landing pads. Oh, okay. And so it's kind of the perfect place, specifically focused on Sao Paulo, is the perfect place to enable something like this to happen. Uh, Los Angeles was also zoned for this, but they recently removed that requirement. Um, so, in, so in Brazil, at the moment, uh, you've got the right kind of confluence of a favorable regulatory climate mm -hmm. around this technology and the infrastructure to support it. So Jennifer Richter in Washington, D.C., what is the regulatory environment and what are the, what's, what are the FAA and FCC doing? What are their roles looking at oh, these things? Wow. That's a lot of questions. Um, so uh, where are we? Um, we just recently achieved the first um, authority from the FAA to allow Google to do package delivery. And so this is UAS, unmanned aircraft systems, lower to the ground, um, drones that are not carrying people, but packages. Um, that took a lot to get done. Uh, they filed for 70 plus waivers of the current manned aviation rules in order to get that authority from the FAA. And that's only allowing them to deliver packages within the visual line of sight. So it's pretty limited still. Um, the regulators are struggling mightily to figure out how do we um, enable all these great technologies in the systems that we have. And it's going to take some time to get done, uh, for sure. And that's just UAS, again, you know, package delivery. That's not putting people on drones. I will say the conversations that we have with all of the regulators about the future here uh, and about urban air mobility is really encouraging. And, um, and they see the vision and they understand where they need to get to, but they're just... Uh, there's a lot to work through 
uh, before we get there. Um, the different roles of, uh, of the government agencies is interesting. So the, the FAA really looks at all of this from a safety perspective. Um, the FCC has a role because you have to be able to communicate with these unmanned vehicles that are flying in the air. And so the FCC looks at this from a technology coexistence point of view. The wireless networks will be used to help support the communications functions of UAS and UAM. Um, and that's well, minus what US, UAS and UAM yep, yeah. unmanned aircraft systems, so drones mm -hmm. um, and urban air mobility automated air taxis carrying people. Um, and uh, the FCC is looking at how do we allow the wireless networks to be used in the air and on the ground simultaneously, and is there any technology coexistence that we need to you know, figure out? Is there any interference that might occur? The Department of Homeland Security looks at this from a security point of view. You know, what is, what is safe uh, in terms of our military bases and our critical infrastructure? And should drones be allowed to fly anywhere? And what do we need to be concerned about? And so remote ID and tracking of um, drones is super important and really a building block for everything that we're doing um, here. And NASA is working on this UAS traffic management system. They've been so... Uh, ahead of the game and doing such impressive work. Um, and remote ID and tracking is necessary before we can have a whole system that's going to help govern where drones are in the airspace and then matching that up with where manned aviation is at higher altitudes. So there's a, there's a lot going on. And I say, you know, we've been working at this for six or seven years, but we're still at the beginning uh, there's a tremendous amount left to be done. Uma Subramanian, tell us about the relationship between autonomous cars and these, these drones. How much was there uh, technological overflow from what's happening on, you know, the uh, autonomous cars to what's happening to autonomous vehicles? Well, maybe they're not autonomous, but tell us about the technology relationship between cars and, and flying cars. So I think an important kind of point to make is that we don't believe that UAM is going to be the only solution. Uh, but it's going to be part of the solution. So you're going to have autonomous vehicles on the ground, coupled with urban air mobility, coupled with better public transport, and collectively those things are going to work together to bring uh, relief on the congestion issues. But from a technological point of view, and I think Joe Ben's probably really well placed to discuss this, but um, you've got the same three systems that, that govern autonomy on the ground. So you've got LIDAR, radar, and cameras. And so they just work in different proportions in the sky because the distances that you're measuring and the rates that you're traveling are materially different. And so while the technology is similar, you could argue that the problem is slightly easier to solve in the sky because you have far fewer things that you can interfere with. Um, but Joe Ben will probably disagree and say it's probably harder to solve in the sky. Um, but it's an interesting, so the basic technology building blocks are the same, but uh, the control algorithms and the things that make them work together are materially more complex. There's a lot of sociology I've learned you know, at a four-way stop in terms of cues. You know, is that person, you know, Waiting. What, what does that nod mean? Are you going? Are you stopping? Right. You know, uh, am, are you going to hit me? Am I going to hit you? Right. There's a lot of sociology at a four-way stop. Jobin, is it true that there's less of that in the air or is there, is it harder? No, absolutely. I completely agree with Uma that uh, the autonomy for uh, these sorts of aircraft is is a is a simpler technological challenge than for ground vehicles, um, but there's something that's even more exciting uh, is that we don't need these to be autonomous in order for them to be profoundly impactful for all of our daily lives. So autonomy does uh, allow us to reduce the operating cost of these aircraft, but whether that 
that autonomy comes five years, 10 years, or 15 years from now, we're still going to be operating these aircraft within the next few years. So we're able to operate them just like a small airplane or a small helicopter is operated today uh, with a pilot within the existing air, air traffic control framework. And that's really exciting for the FAA and for the regulators because that allows them to embrace this new technology, which is going to really fundamentally change daily mobility um, with the existing rules and the existing framework. And uh, so the FAA is really uh, leaning in on this and they're applying a huge amount of resources to make sure that uh, they're not the, the slowest part of the program. And we are finding that um, with collision avoidance technologies in particular, the technologies that have been um, invented for ground use uh, to keep cars from uh, colliding is often uh, thought about for use in the air to uh, to um, assist with collision avoidance. And so the the CV to X uh, component of LTE chipsets is something that we think will work efficiently on the ground and in the air. Yeah, absolutely. All of the the technological components, whether it's, as Uma talked about, the, the LIDAR or the radar, the cameras, and all of the algorithms that, that fuse that data together are very, very similar. Um, and so we've been able to to piggyback on a huge amount of work and a huge amount of research that's being done for autonomous ground transportation. But again, the long pole there is likely going to be the regulatory one, as Jennifer was talking about. Getting autonomous aircraft into the national airspace takes new regulations. And so there's variability on how long that will end up taking. And so that's the reason that, that bringing this to market as a piloted solution uh, in the early days is, makes a lot of sense. And is this a federal question at first? Is, it, is this going to be the federal government deciding this? It's not going to be Arizona deciding, like, you know, there's been sort of this scramble with autonomous vehicles with Arizona. There's crashing California. Arizona says, come on, bring them over here. No problem. <laughs> right. Well, there isn't but, a state that hasn't tried right. to legislate <laughs> with respect to unmanned aircraft. So the states really have gotten into the act. The FAA has tried to make clear that they have um, sovereignty over the airspace, uh-huh. but um, state and local governments can um, create their own rules around privacy and nuisance and those kinds of features that the community may be concerned about. And I think generally in most countries, airspace is governed at the federal level. It's right, very okay. rare that it's a kind of local jurisdiction. Charlie Vogelheim? Well, a good way to, to think of it, the FAA allows you to come into the air, and then it's the community that allows you to come back to the ground. That's true. So that's, that's where the uh, yeah. regulation comes. <laughs> so it's a good thing to have. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about the future of airborne transportation. Coming up, getting it off the ground. I mean, we've paid for airports for years. We've paid for the air traffic control system and everything about that. It's, it's part of our transportation network, um, whether it's, uh, you know, again, the municipal buses or the roads that they go on. It's all part of the cost uh, of another form of transportation. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about our flying car future. My guests are attorney Jennifer Richter of Aiken Gump, Joe Ben Bevert of Joby Aviation, Uma Subramanian of Aero Technologies, and Charlie Vogelheim, an industry consultant. All major automakers are plowing capital into technologies for self-driving vehicles in the hope that robocars will solve many of our current urban transportation problems. 
Charlie Vogelheim says they won't go far enough. You know, we're at this crossroads where there's, there's four things that are kind of a problem right now we have with transportation, uh, congestion, pollution, uh, mobility, just the ability to get into the, the, those that, that are getting older, and even safety. And this is what this autonomous vehicle development is trying to solve. And, but what we don't, so, so we don't solve with uh, what we call ACEs, which is the development of autonomous, connected, electrification, and shared vehicles, necessarily is, is the overall congestion issues. So then all of a sudden the idea is to take to the sky. And we can do that with this technology, and even if it is piloted and we have the sensors in there, the collision avoidance and things, it makes it either for an easier craft, a safer, safer craft, or possibly less training uh, required for the pilot. But roll back the clock uh, five or ten years, Charlie, and... Uber and Lyft sold us on the idea that shared was going to solve congestion, right? It was going to reduce car ownership. But I've heard, I think John Zimmer, founder of Lyft, was very sincere about this. Looked at this asset that we have that's used 5 or 10% of the time. It's sitting there. You're paying insurance. You're paying for parking all this time. You're not using it. It's an underutilized asset. It made sense. So let's share it. And then the unintended consequences is that it increased traffic congestion because 40,000 cars come into San Francisco every day uh, from far away to be around because we want them to be there less than two minutes or else we're upset. And we're, we're unhappy. So, you know, uh, that was what we were told before. And it actually mm-hmm. was we were sold that it was going to reduce congestion. It's increasing congestion. So why should we believe it's going to be different this time in the air? That's going to do what as promised. Well, um, I can't make that promise. But um, what is interesting about the airspace is that it is massively underutilized. Um, and so right now, the airspace system in most countries is a nodal network. And you could put many, many, many more multiples of vehicles through that nodal network before you reach any kind of capacity constraint. And I think what is interesting about the airspace utilization is that while, while you may get there, so Uber Elevate talks about an, a network where you have 1,000 vehicles per city, which would be great for Joe Ben's business. Um, but it, it's, it, it requires a leap of imagination because we were flying four helicopters in a, in a space and the ground control infrastructure considered that space congested. So there are many multiple iterations of, uh, of vehicles that can come into an airspace before you get anywhere near the congestion that you have on the ground. Are you assuming that they're quiet and unobtrusive and that they're not peeking in my window when I'm, while I'm changing? And- <laughs> Hopefully they're not flying that low. We've got a, we've got a bigger uh, problem. Uh, but, but social acceptance, right? Jennifer Richter, that, that, that yeah. presumes there's social acceptance, right? There's one thing that's technologically possible, uh, but then there's social acceptance, which I know you think about a lot. Yeah, absolutely right. I, you know, well, there are two things that are really important. There's community acceptance and community readiness, which are really two separate things. So we do need to get communities comfortable with seeing a lot of vehicles flying in the air, low to the ground for various purposes. And, um, you know, I think Uma was talking about the the Voom model as something that's really been a precursor in some cities to allow people to start to think about taking to the air rather than the ground to get where they need to go. Um, So that's really exciting. But we do need to work through the noise issues to the extent they exist um, and the privacy issues because people are concerned about that. That seems to be a... um, 
a hot button people like to push. Um, and we need to work through other issues like counter UAS. I mean, there are a great many issues that we need to work through to make sure the communities are comfortable with this innovation. Uh, but communities also need to be ready because we need to think about them as partners to, uh, you know, Joby Aviation and Airbus and Uber Elevate. Um, the communities have to invest in the communications infrastructure that will make their cities smart and make their cities capable of supporting the low-altitude traffic management system that uh, needs to be on-demand and available um, and reliable all the time in order to support safe flight. Um, and that requires dense fiber and uh, small cells, you know, dense wireless in these communities and lots of sensors. There's, there's a lot that goes into this, and the, the communities really need to want this and to be an active partner. So, Charlie Volgeheim, why should taxpayers invest in dense fiber and the infrastructure for a few rich people to fly around in the sky? Well, again, hopefully done right, it's not going to be a few rich people. It's going to be a viable solution that's going to be not only for people, but also for for commerce. Uh, they won't only be, again, flying you around, and you think about any any time, even in emergency situations and things like that, to get from point A to point B. Uh, it's all about infrastructure. It's an infrastructure cost. I mean, we've paid for airports for years. We've paid for the whole ATC, uh, the air traffic control system, and everything about that. It's it's part of our transportation network, um, whether it's, uh, you know, again, the municipal buses or the roads that they go on. It's all part of the cost uh, of another form of transportation. Joe Bevert, a lot of products, cell phones, start out as elite products and then, then they go to the mass market. Uh, you know, uh, Tesla did that with electric cars. Now, it, you know, you can buy an electric car for $30,000. What's your vision for going from elite to mass? So we, we really want to be able to launch this at an affordable price point that's accessible to everyone. Uh, that is similar cost to taking a taxi. Uh, on a cost per passenger mile. Uh, and then our ambition is to get it to the cost of personal car ownership. Uh, and so that, that's what you can achieve as you move towards autonomy. Uh, and so, so this yeah. really is Jetson. We're going to have one of these in our own garage. I mean, uh, no, it, uh, again, this is, this is, you're buying a ticket. It's, you're booking okay. it like you do uh, a, a rideshare, okay. uh, ground, ground-based rideshare, but Instead, you're going to get there five or ten times faster. Uh, and so that's, that's the, the essence. But it is, it is all predicated on util- utilization and, ch- and sharing the, the aircraft. Expensive so. as, as at first, but the price will come down just as it, Uber and Lyft started higher than they came down, right? But again, in the, in the price of a taxi, price as, of a taxi. As, as an entry point. And, and Jobin, explain why electrification is key to this, because this is climate one. We want to talk about displacing fossil fuels. Yeah, so one of the big challenges with helicopters is they're uh, incredibly noisy. And I don't want uh, a helipad sighted on the the building next door. Uh, And so in order for for neighborhoods to ask for and embrace this, because as Charlie talked about, the airspace is regulated at the federal level, but the takeoff and landing locations are going to be regulated at the municipal level. And so whether it's a building owner who says, I want to have a, a takeoff and landing location here, uh, their neighborhood want, is, is going to need to embrace this, right? They're going to need to say, yes, I want this. It's going to make our neighborhood, it's, it's going to be like having a new subway stop in our neighborhood. And so that's, that's the, the crucial piece. And so we've spent the last 10 years, this has been my dream for 25 years. I built an electric VTOL in 1993. Um, 
at that point in time, batteries didn't have the specific energy that is the energy stored per unit of mass or per unit of weight that was necessary to get sufficient range. Uh, and then I, I waited until batteries improved about 10 years ago. They got to the point where I thought that the design closed, meaning that you could actually build a viable electric air taxi. And uh, for the last 10 years, we've been doing very, very uh, deep work on uh, reducing the noise of uh, the acoustic noise from the propellers. So one of the beautiful things about electric propulsion is that the motor itself is drastically quieter. And so with a helicopter, your two noise sources are, are the rotor, the main rotor, the tail rotor, and then the engine, whether it's a turbine or piston engine. And the piston or turbine engine is about half the noise of the helicopter. So the electric propulsion solves half of that. It also massively reduces the emissions and massively increases the efficiency. So there's a whole bunch of ancillary gain from a climate perspective there. But the, the key piece for community acceptance and being able to take off and land from locations that are convenient is, is this noise piece. So it solves half the noise piece. We've been spending the last 10 years really working on solving the other half of the noise piece, which is the noise from the propeller. And uh, our target is to be more than 100 times quieter than a helicopter. And Uma and Joben, you have different visions in terms of w- the way this will roll out. Uma, that you think it'll be sort of urban hops, and Joben, you think it'll be more kind of suburban commuter. Paint your vision in terms of where you think this will adopt first. So Uma. I think that the most uh, one of the most interesting use cases is what you what you have in Sao Paulo, which is a place that is not really well connected in the urban environment. So the urban core does not have a lot of mass transportation. It does have a subway, but it's not everywhere. It's not ubiquitous. And so in a city like that, where you have the infrastructure in place to enable intercity commute, you can save yourself. So we used to fly from Paulista to Itaim. It took us three minutes, and it can take you up to two hours in a car if you catch it at the wrong time of day. And so from the airport to the city center was 12 minutes by helicopter and four and a half hours on a Friday afternoon. And so you can radically cut out a lot of time out of your daily commute for the intercity urban commute. And you, you end up with a slightly different architecture than what Joe Ben has on the, on the suburban commute when you go down that route. And so there's about 30 cities around the world that can support an intercity transportation network. So Mexico City, Los Angeles, Sao Paulo, Lagos, there's these, there's these cities in the world where you could do this today and it could actually work and you could have a material impact on congestion in these cities. Joe Ben, you have a different view that people are what uh, commuting 100 miles to their job? Uh, so I, I actually think that Um and I, we, we very much share Um's view. Um, we're designing our aircraft. Uh, it can do a, a two-mile trip in a very, very heavily congested area, or it can do a 200-mile trip. And by building one aircraft, which has a huge amount of capability and can serve all the different missions, it means that we're going to be able to uh, scale up the production of them to larger quantities uh, in less time and get the, the capital cost of building them down quickly. What does this mean, though, if, if I can fly, you know, if I can live 200 miles from work, uh, you could live in Lake Tahoe and work in Palo Alto, that sort of thing. What does this, <laughs> what does this mean for, for land use, for, for sort of live-work patterns, Joe Ben Bevert? Well, there's, there's certainly the example that you talked about. Uh, I think one of the things that gets me the most excited is thinking about uh, the, the future in which we're pulling a lot of uh, traffic off of uh, streets in the city. And we can all of a sudden, if, you know, if every other street got turned into a walking only zone and you planted trees and created parks, uh, we've all been to uh, cities which have created walking only zones. 
and restaurants go out onto the street and uh, the city comes alive in a really magical way. And so as I look at this future, that's the, the future that gets me really excited is what can cities look like as we remove the automobile? For the more than 100 years, our, our cities have really become chained to the automobile and, and our, our civilization has grown up around the automobile. But what if, what if we can remove those chains? How does uh, the world look you know, 20 years from now or 50 years from now? That's what gets me up every day. But doesn't the flip side of that, doesn't it enable sprawl? I think it, it enables people to live where they want to live. If your dream job is 50 miles from where uh, your partner works or your kids go to school and they've, you know, they've got all their friends, you, today that's, that's a really, really horrible and hard choice that you have to make where you have to say, okay, I'm either going to spend two hours in the car every day or you know, two hours on the way to work in the morning and two hours at night and you, I don't get to see my family in order to have my dream job. And so a lot of people can't take the opportunities, don't have access to the opportunities that they like because of where they live. Certainly a lot of wasted productivity, although it's good when you're listening to public radio. Uh, you're sitting <laughs> in traffic jams. If you're just joining us, my guest is Joe Ben Bevert, founder and CEO of Joby Aviation, Jennifer Richter, an attorney with Aiken Gump in Washington, D.C., Uma Subramanian, CEO of Aero Technologies, and Charlie Vogelheim, an auto industry consultant. I'm Greg Dalton. Uma, how is this going to flow into commercial aviation? You used to work for a unit of Airbus. Uh, we're talking about an emerging niche sector, uh, Global aviation is about 2% of carbon emissions. It's growing quickly. What are the chances that commercial aviation will be influenced by these technological developments? So um, this may be a slightly unpopular view. One of the big challenges with commercial aviation is that battery technology does not yet have the power density to enable regional slash long-haul aviation using electric technology. So my view on this is that we're going to get hybrid electric systems first. Everyone's working on them. Rolls-Royce just acquired Siemens' electric propulsion division to string together a hybrid electric propulsion plant. And the reality for aviation, for commercial aviation to go electric, is that we need the next step change. So someone, whoever, whoever comes up with the next iteration beyond a lithium-ion battery is going to be a billionaire because commercial aviation is waiting for it, desperate for it. But we're not there yet. We, we don't have the ability. The, the, you get to a point where the weight no longer makes sense. Um, on the commercial aviation side. So I think from I think the, the tie-in between urban air mobility and commercial aviation is that urban air mobility will serve as a feeder. A lot of airports are kind of 18 to 26 kilometers from the city center, and you can cut out a lot of congestion with people going to the airport. But the technical evolution uh, is, is pretty tough. So there's been a lot of companies that have tried uh, electric regional aircraft, and, and it's just really hard to make the design close given today's technology. There's a company called Ampere in Los Angeles uh, that has a six-passenger Cessna, recently tested it. They sold 50 of them. Not so you can do it with a six-passenger Cessna. You just can't do it with a 120-seat um, A320. Jobin Bevert? So my mission is to save a billion people an hour a day in their, in their daily commutes, moving people around cities. Um, but I also have a dream and I, I have a belief that within the next 20 years, we will remove carbon emissions from uh, commercial air transport as well. Uh, so the, <laughs> the, the technology's there. Um, and uh, there are exciting things to come on that front. Charlie, do you see it happening? 
Well, again, it, the weight is a big consideration. And, you know, one thing about liquid fuels is you have less when you land than when you took off. And aircraft are engineered accordingly that, you know, you actually have a, a lower landing weight because you've burned the fuel in, in clay. So you're going to have to build the aircraft a little bit different. I see the hybridization as being the, the key transfer point. And even with some of these smaller um, So aircraft, what, what does that mean? So it's like you take off electric and then you fly on take liquid? Take off with a turbine. So take off with a turbine and, so, then, and cru- then you cruise on electric. Yeah. Because okay. the turbine, way. you need the the power, the turbine. So fossil fuels are the most power dense, most efficient form of fuel out there. Unfortunately, beautiful right? things. Uh, yes. yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and and the reality is that you need the most amount of. Uh, power at takeoff. And so you use the turbine to get yourself going, get yourself accelerated, and then you can cruise in electric flight. That's how the hybrid system would work. Yeah. Or, and there's an overlap. I mean, the same thing we see in the cars where the, the two work together to get the uh, the vehicle in motion. And then once it's in motion, you need quite a lot, uh, a lot less power to just keep it in motion. And then, of course, coming down is uh, quite a bit easier. You don't need any power at all. Gravity does the work for you. <laughs> so... This is Climate One. You're listening to a conversation about the mechanics of the flying car of the future. Coming up, taking on the design challenge. People keep thinking about when they think about flying cars is where's that car that I can drive and then the wings come out. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about going from wheels to wings with Charlie Vogelheim of Vogelheim Ventures, Uma Subramanian of Aero Technologies, Joe Ben Bevert of Joby Aviation, and Jennifer Richter of the law firm Aiken Gump. As we envision a future three-dimensional transportation system, what about the nuts and bolts, zoning, regulations, logistics? To start with, where are all those flying taxis going to land? Jennifer Richter has some thoughts. There are all different kinds of designs for these sky ports that will develop. And sometimes they're reusing rooftops that already exist, and sometimes it's a brand new structure. But, I mean, clearly, you know, municipalities will have to be involved in where they feel comfortable allowing that kind of flight to occur. And that's going to be an iterative process, I'm sure, with local regulators, federal regulators, the businesses, and the community. Durbin, your thoughts on that? I mean, probably no coincidence that some of that early stuff is happening in Texas, more business friendly mm-hmm. than California, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an incredible opportunity for glo- the global real estate market. We think about real estate as a $230 trillion global asset class. And what are the effects on that asset class as you provide a new, a new means of mobility? I've had friends that uh, have you know, building in, in London, they put in a new tube stop and their, uh, their cap rate soared. Um, I was leasing space in a building in Shenzhen. They put in a subway stop in the basement and the, the rents, rents doubled. So you have this really, really intimate tie between, you know, you look here in the Bay area, real estate, that's a long Caltrain is substantially more valuable and the vacancy rates are much, much lower. Uh, so access to transportation, access to mobility, being close to a freeway off-ramp, these are all things that drive the, the value of real estate. And uh, so now all of a sudden, 
every building has the ability to have access to this new nodal network that Uma was talking about. And, and that's insanely powerful. Uh, and it, it really, it opens up mobility from every rooftop. And, you know, that's, it's, it's hard to imagine from where we sit today, but uh, looking back, you know, th there's these pictures of uh, New York in uh, 1908 and then New York in 1915 or something like that. And over a five or 10 year period of time, it went from all horse and buggy to all automobile. Um, I don't know that this is going to be such a massive sea change, but I do believe that it will profoundly impact or profoundly improve the quality of life uh, in and around cities in a relatively short period of time. And Uma, do these business models, are, uh, I want to clarify that what I heard, I think, Jobin say earlier is that they are based on humans flying them, whereas Uber and Lyft right now, basically, they're, they're trying to develop autonomous because they, they can't be profitable paying, paying drivers, so they need robots to be profitable. Is that different here in aviation? Uh, so one of the challenges of aviation as an industry is we're going to be short. So given mandatory retirement ages in commercial aviation, we're going to be short about 35,000 pilots year over year over year for the next 15 years. So there's an enormous opportunity in aviation in general. And then that does not that that is commercial aviation today. That does not take into account the pilots you're going to need for urban air mobility. Um, I think that ultimately, like the economics work. So we were, so even with a helicopter, you can make the, the economics work so that you can get to a journey price that's about two to three times the price of a taxi and make the economics close on a per seat basis. My, my, my former CFO is sitting there looking at me uh, with a smile on his face. Um, so it is hard with passenger, uh, with passengers in the aircraft and with a pilot in the, in the aircraft, but it's not impossible. Yeah, I was going to say considerations are, have to do with weight because the pilot weighs something. Training, again, they're much more valuable uh, because of the, the effort that they've made to be, become licensed. And to your point, they're just going to be in short supply. And those that are well-trained and safe or should be flying hundreds of people around, not, not three or four people around at a time, unfortunately. So when you compare it to the driver in your Uber or Lyft who's driving one person around at 20 miles an hour or some, you know, a little bit of the time, uh, you compare that to a pilot who might be f flying an average of two or three people around, um, but doing it at 10 times the speed, you then end up with uh, something on the order of 20 or 30 times the productivity for that, that pilot compared to that lift driver. And so that becomes really transformational in terms of when, when you think about what you can afford to pay that pilot compared to that car driver, because that on a passenger mile basis, it's that person's profoundly more productive. So that's, that's the way the economics close, where we can charge the same price, pay the pilot way more um, than they'd be getting paid if they were driving in a, a ground vehicle and uh, have incredible operating margins. We talk here a lot about, at Climate One about uh, economic opportunity, economic disruption, and the transition from, from fossil fuels to clean energy. What kind of jobs will be created? I'm hearing, thinking lots of highly technical jobs. What job doesn't exist today that will exist in five years because of this transition? So I think pilots in general. So I tell a lot of young people, go be a pilot. It's a great opportunity right now. We're short pilots in the commercial space. We're going to be short pilots on the, on the UAM side as well. And there's an enormous opportunity to learn new kind of 
air technologies. Uh, we also found that we ended up creating a lot of jobs. So just our Sao Paulo operation ended up creating 20 to 30 jobs with people that were on the receiving end of the nodes. So you have the concierges and the firemen and the people that are creating uh, that are welcoming the passengers on either end, doing dispatch and full-time firemen. I'm not sure that gives me confidence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it's one of those. Uh, it's a helicopter challenge, um, which you won't have with electric VTOL. Uh, but you've got you've got job creation on the, at the nodal network as well. So there's service centers, there's people, there's, there's uh, you know, sort customers. of a lounge, people <laughs> serving beers at the at the skyports, that sort of thing. Jobin, what other kinds of jobs? So I mean, to date, we've hired 350 technicians and engineers. Uh, and we're, we have hundreds of job openings uh, and <laughs> growing very quickly. Um, we, as, as Zuma talked about, we're going to need to hire thousands and then tens of thousands of pilots. Um, there will be uh, maintenance staff. Uh, there will be customer service staff. Um, manufacturing in the U.S. or manufacturing overseas? Uh, so we're setting up a production operation in Marina, which is uh, at an old Army base near Monterey here in California. Uh, so, yeah, uh, thousands of manufacturing jobs. Jennifer Richter. And uh, UAS service suppliers. So um, I mentioned earlier UAS traffic management. UAS being? Unmanned aircraft systems. So um, the air traffic control systems that that govern manned aviation today will not be used for this lower to the ground um, unmanned uh, system opportunity, whether it's for drones at lower altitudes or urban air mobility at higher altitudes, you know, up to 3,000 feet or maybe even higher. Um, so a whole air traffic management system needs to grow up to support this. There are a number of companies that are already doing it through a program at the FAA called Lance. It's sort of a precursor to what this ultimately will be. Um, but there is a there will be tremendous demand and need for having um, a number of these UAS service suppliers in the market that are assisting all the people that want to fly drones, whether they're carrying passengers or carrying pets packages or passengers um, in order to ensure safe flight. Jennifer Richter, how do we know that these things aren't going to be turned into weapons? <laughs> Great question. Um, we don't. Um, you know, we will have a cooperative system, um, this remote ID and tracking system that ultimately will be a requirement for all drones, will be a cooperative system. And so uh, the thought is that um, if someone is not cooperating in the system, if they have nefarious intent, perhaps they won't, you won't see them you know, in the system the way that you would need to, and you would know as law enforcement that you might need to take that particular uh, drone out of the sky. Um, today, the authorities to be able to take a drone out of the sky are uh, slim. There are aircraft, and it's a federal crime to take a an aircraft out of the sky. So, um, so I can't shoot one down over my farm. You may not. (laughs) You may not. Yeah. So, uh, we're working on that. Uh, that's, uh, one of the many things we're working on in Washington because today the department of energy, the department of justice, the department of Homeland security are really the only agencies that have the authority to be able to, um, implement counter UAS technology. And what I envision ultimately, because there are so many verticals of critical infrastructure that may want to protect themselves from potentially nefarious drones. Um, Ultimately, there may need to be some sort of system put in place, and I'm not sure who runs it. Maybe it's the Department of Homeland Security where they can 
authorize certain individuals in organizations uh, that are associated with critical infrastructure um, to be able to operate counter UAS technology, and perhaps they're also specifying the kind of technology to be used. Uh, but there are lots of questions around the counter UAS. And I think one important thing is NASA's running uh, a holistic system-wide safety initiative, and it's got multiple verticals and multiple technical challenges. And I think the answer on how you're going to actually protect the airspace is there's going to be a mandatory piece. So the airspace will be fully mapped is the ultimate end state vision. And the no-fly zones will be very clearly articulated in, a, in probably in a collective piece of software that will be mandatory for any uh, autonomous system flying in that. So there will be just paths you cannot go down. So do not enter signs that like that the system will not be able to manually. Military bases, obviously. Sure. Yeah, that's all sorts the, of that's the notional yeah. construct at the moment. And like the challenge with airspace management, and this is one of the big kind of hurdles to getting to autonomy, is that a lot of the systems are quite analog. And so uh, evolving from a system where you have an air traffic controller who like moves an aircraft along to a system where the system itself is doing deconfliction is, is a long and, and complicated road. But ultimately, in order to enable the system at scale, you're going to have to have these mandatory pieces of software that enable deconfliction. And Greg, just to your point, uh, also the uh, cybersecurity developments in the autonomous vehicle side are going to transfer over. It's, again, any, any vehicle in motion could potentially be of danger. And uh, obviously, some are on the ground and some will be in the air. And, and obviously, we've seen them used in, in both places. So it is a concern. But again, the, the cybersecurity side of the business is flourishing. And uh, again, trying to stay a step ahead and make sure that the communications remain uh, positive. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the future of flying cars at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Joe Ben Bevert, founder and CEO of Joby Aviation, Jennifer Richter, an attorney with Aiken Gump in Washington, D.C., Uma Subramanian, CEO of Aero Technologies, and Charlie Vogelheim, an auto industry consultant. We're going to include your questions. So there's a microphone back there. I invite you to join us with a one, uh, one part comment or question. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. Hi, my name is Nancy Waltering, and I wonder what kind of design considerations have gone into protecting bird life, particularly around our shorelines, if we have hundreds of these around the bay? Uh, so I'll, I'll take that one. Uh, we, the first use of our autonomy sensors will actually not be for autonomy. So these are the, the radar uh, the LIDAR and the cameras that we put on the aircraft, they'll be for detecting birds and drones um, so that we can avoid them. They don't want us to hit them. We don't want to hit them. <laughs> um, we're uh, all unanimous on not wanting to, uh, to take out birds. So uh, if you look at uh, wind turbines, which I'm, I'm a, a huge fan of, one of the things that I hate about them is, especially in the early days, the ones that went up in Altamont, my uh, best friend's uh, grandfather founded U.S. Wind Power. They were small. They were uh, spun at high RPM, and they were very, very dangerous to birds. And as wind turbines have grown in size, um, the number of bird casualties have dropped. But it's really, really imperative as we try to solve climate change that we don't have collateral consequences. Thank you for your question. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, uh, Jennifer, you mentioned that the air traffic control systems are going to be different for unmanned, you know, package delivery type drone aircraft mm -hmm. uh, than they are today. Why, why is that other than the obvious, well, some aircraft are big and fly high and some are small and fly low to the ground. Isn't it sort of the same problem? 
It is. Um, the FAA, notwithstanding its sovereignty over the airspace, doesn't view its role as um, implementing and running an air traffic management system for aircraft that are uh, lower to the ground. So as much as they will be involved in helping us with the rules and protocols that will be acceptable for this UAS traffic management system, which really is a cooperative system, um, they will not be running that system. They've, and they've been pretty emphatic about that from the, from the start. Uh, I, I can add, uh, having worked for the FAA, uh, again, there's a lot of things that can be done with the sensors and, and again, with avoidance in, in a broader area, you know, well-mapped, as you mentioned, Uma, uh, that don't require, you know, human intervention uh, to, to avoid collision. And that's the main purpose. And the speeds are a little bit lower and the controllability is at a much greater degree also. And I think just the order of magnitude, right? So, like, we fly a few thousand flights a day in our national airspace in the aggregate. And so what we're talking about is tens of thousands of flights a day, and it's just an order of magnitude problem, and it's materially harder. And so to go, and, and the system is truly analog. If you go sit in the control tower at SFO, it's fascinating. It, this is San Francisco, and the tower controllers still pass pieces of paper between yeah. each other to manage the flight as it's coming into the airspace. That doesn't work with thousands of aircraft in the sky at the same time. Just one of those things. There also is an issue with respect to um, are we using aviation um, spectrum bands? Are we using aviation technologies in order to accomplish uh, safe flight for smaller aircraft, lower altitude? Or are we using other resources? And the fact is there just isn't enough aviation spectrum or uh, the right technologies available or that can handle the volume to Uma's point of um, the interrogations that will be coming. Um, and so we have to look at other more commercial solutions. Next question. Welcome. Thank you. Katie Hansen. Charlie, I really enjoy your radio show and I'm wondering as you are covering the automotive industry, are there any car companies that are taking to the air? Mm. Um, there's been some interesting design things. And when you talk about car company, I mean, because we talk about, and you, and you mentioned Airbus, Boeing, of course, is, is taking this very seriously. Um, the car companies, Daimler is behind the, the Volocopter. And I know uh, Uma can speak to that. Uh, that's, of course, the uh, company in Germany. And then, of course, uh, Audi is doing a great Intel design uh, with, um, help me, with one of the Boeing aircraft that uh, they're talking about. But they're talking about, again, the integration of the aircraft, like a pod, which, again, this is now really cool where you get into a pod that's in a car and then it pulls up to something and then the uh, a helicopter or the blades are attached to it and then you take off and fly somewhere and then you're dropped back down into a car-like uh, structure. Uh, Audi Intel Design. Look that one up and you'll learn and more. And it's an Airbus. Uh, that's Airbus. <laughs> Thank you. It's actually A3, not A3, A3, that was it. <laughs> so uh, so the, the actual air flying module was an Airbus, Airbus Audi Intel Design. But the interesting Actually. thing that people keep thinking about when they think about flying cars is where, where's that car that I can drive and then the wings come out and again, chitty, chitty, bang, bang. Well, chitty, chitty, bang. You say the Jetsons <laughs> and I say that was a spaceship, not a not a flying <laughs> car. Um, but uh, again, that takes runway. That takes infrastructure. It, what you basically have is not a very good airplane and not a very good car <laughs> at the same time. We've been talking about how flying cars will change our personal mobility. My guests on Climate One today were Joe Ben Bevert, founder and CEO of Joby Aviation, Uma Subramanian, CEO of Aero Technologies, Jennifer Richter, a partner with the law firm Aiken Gump, and Charlie Vogelheim, an industry consultant. This program was generously underwritten by the ClimateWorks Foundation. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at climateone.org. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. 
Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner, Justin Norton, and Arnav Gupta. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Dr. Gloria Duffy is the CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>